I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, February 20th, 2012. For my listeners in the United States, it's President's Day, and I hope you're enjoying a three-day weekend. I'm doing a normal program today, though, so it's a normal work day for me. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's a, there's a big misconception that in general American evangelicalism, and that is, is that if somebody has a successful megachurch ministry, if somebody is pastoring pastors, if somebody is uh, having their sermons listened to far and wide around the globe, that that automatically means that they're blessed from God, that that obviously what they're teaching is true and God is blessing their ministries because if they weren't blessing their ministries, then why are so many people listening to them? Yeah, see, that's actually not how it works. Think back into you know Old Testament times, if you would. There are seasons when God, um, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, this is kind of how the Bible describes it, punishes nations. And judges them. And one of the ways in which he judges them is by causing a famine in of his word to exist. And when that occurs, um, you know, well, those who believe rightly, who believe the truth, who trust in the one true God and haven't bent their knee to Baal, Baal kind of symbolizing at this point, just about every false doctrine you could possibly imagine. And Baal was an idol, false deity. Um, well, then what happens is is that uh, you know the 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 overall total number of people in the visible church that well that are actually believers shrinks rather than grows. This is why I think, in part, the Apostle Paul, uh, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Second Timothy chapter four, warns us 
well, admonishes, well, pastors specifically, to preach the word in season and out of season. There are times when preaching the word is going to be, well, out of vogue. It's going to be out of season. As a result of it, there's going to be times in, in well, in Christianity, in the Christian church, in history, uh, when the church is overrun with people who are scratching, itching ears. They're twisting the scriptures. They're uh, teaching things they ought not to teach. And oftentimes, one of the things that they're doing is teaching what they ought not to teach, well, in order to make a buck, to you know, make merchandise off of the church, to, well, wield power and influence and be awash in money. And just because somebody's ministry is numerically or financially successful does not, does not under any circumstance indicate whether or not what they're teaching you is true. In order to determine that, you've got to become a good Bible student. It requires you to learn how to listen carefully with one eye on the text and the other guy on the uh, well the other guy on the pulpit well maybe on stage nowadays but you you get what i'm saying so the idea here is is that there's lots of folks out there who know how to scratch itching ears yeah make you feel good they have engaging delivery styles i mean they are such such good orders they can like literally grab your attention from the word go and have you in the palm of their of their hands, you know? Uh, they can take you to the highest heights emotionally, and then all of a sudden bring you to the lowest depths, and and have you laughing one moment and crying the next, and they're just such gifted orators, and not a word of what they're saying is true. <laughs> At least when it comes to God. And so... Listen, the, the gauge as to whether or not somebody is really a gifted uh, teacher of God's Word, well, it's it's not going to be whether or not they got millions and gazillions of dollars flowing into their ministry. It, it's not whether or not uh, they are invited to speak at all of the latest hobnob, hubbub, super influential con, uh, conferences and mega church parties you know and it you know, to pastor pastors and to influence the influential and, you know that, that that's not actually the indicator always and again it comes down to something simple it comes down to something basic it comes down to something almost embarrassingly well elementary are they telling you the truth. When you go back and you check the tape and you start looking at what they're saying and opening up your Bible and putting those verses back into context, are they pointing you to the truth, to the one true God? Are they teaching you sound doctrine? Or was all that fancy oration, all of that emotional manipulation, all of that engaging suck you in and you know have the experience stuff was that all just well a fancy way to get you to open up your checkbook and write a big check i mean keep in mind the one thing that these mega church pastors all have in common is that the price they expect you to pay to hear them teach you okay 
is 10% of your gross annual income. In other words, I mean, this is something to consider here. Okay, if you're attending a mega church, you know it may you may might be Saddleback at Willow Creek uh, Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, or um, New Spring Church in Anderson, or uh, Fellowship out there in uh, in Texas, uh, you know, uh, in Dallas Fort Worth area. It doesn't matter. Okay, you attend one of these seeker driven mega churches. Okay, if you are making fifty thousand dollars a year. You are expected, you are absolutely expected, admonished, and told that God demands that you bring your tithe. So if you're making $50,000 a year, that tithe is going to be $5,000 over the course of 12 months. 5000 off the gross. So, I mean, here's the question. Is... Five thousand dollars—that's a lot of money. If you're making fifty grand, you're making eighty. It's you know—they're expecting eight thousand dollars. You're making a hundred thousand a year. They're expecting ten thousand dollars from you per year. You're making thirty thousand. They're expecting three thousand of that. So here's the question, okay? Um, what's worth that amount of money? True, sound biblical doctrine. Or a watered-down, entertaining, ear-scratching show that emotionally manipulates you, but at the end of the day, was nothing more than an exercise in full-on Bible twisting. Okay, because here's the deal. I mean, that's the worst part about false doctrine, don't you think? That you know, at the end of the day, um, it leaves you dead in trespasses and sins, leaves you on the broad highway to hell. And at the end of your life, what are you going to have to show for all of those thousands and tens of thousands of dollars that you had to fork over um, you know, to this pastor to be a part of this, have this worship experience? I mean, again, $50,000 a year, you're paying five grand a year, five grand a year to for the privilege, the privilege of being taught false doctrine. <laughs> Is false doctrine really that worth it? I mean – Seriously, I mean, if self-help and you know and emotional pep talks are all that these guys are doing, the the reality is is that you could save yourself a ton of money, ton of money, uh, just buying some of the best books on the topics of self-help at your local bookstore. You know, Barnes and Noble, I think, is the only one that's existing now, or at Amazon, or what? You get what I'm saying? So. So anyway, yeah, so what we do here is we teach you how to learn how to listen because ultimately at the end of the day, we don't want you going to hell uh, and and we don't want you to stay on the broad road. You know, funny enough, um, I have the audacity to believe that I know how to get you on the narrow road. I know where the narrow road is. I know who the narrow road is. It's all about Jesus and him crucified for your sins. And the message of the scriptures is not that difficult to, well, understand. But you've got to understand this about human nature, okay? Human nature, because the scripture, God has revealed that we are by nature dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. Humanity cannot bear, cannot tolerate, will not endure dealing with God's truth. And it ain't just his revealed truth either. It's all of it. Absolutely all of it. 
in one sense or another, man is going to, he is so wicked and so wretched and so rebellious by nature that all of God's truth, even two plus two equals four, is something that is somewhat unbearable for a sinful race. So, you know, is, is your pastor telling you the truth? Well, listen along to this program. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way. We do, you know, we teach broad topic theology and Christian apologetics here. And uh, and hour number two, we do our sermon reviews where I sit in and point out to you whether or not what somebody is saying is true or false based upon how they handle God's Word. So it's all an education, and it's, um, like I said, we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. And this program can be just a little bit on the crazy side. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm going to talk about the, the well, the end of the program first. I'm going to be reviewing a Brian Houston sermon from uh, Hillsong in um, Sydney, Australia. We're going to be reviewing a, um, actually, it's a two-part sermon. If you If you subscribe to the Hillsong podcast, then you know that their podcasts are notoriously short. And it's as if every single Sunday they take a sermon and then they chop it up into a couple of pieces. And so, I mean, who knows what he's currently preaching on. But um, the what we're going to be doing is we're going to be listening to two, a two-part sermon entitled When Something's Over, Don't Stop. When Something's Over, Don't Stop. And uh, listen, you, you're going to want to listen to this uh, sermon review. Here's the reason why. It is yet another example of narcissism. Now, narcissism is a is a word we've coined here that refers to narcissism and eisegesis all kind of stick together. So rather than saying narcissistic eisegesis, it's narcissism. Narcissism is self-love. Eisegesis is you know basically when you read things into the biblical text. No no pastor is ever supposed to read things into the biblical text. Somebody who is skilled in handling God's word always exegetes, reads out what God has put into his word so that we can properly understand it. That being the case, um there is in these seeker driven mega churches and in uh, especially the ones that are flirting with the word faith movement actually Brian Houston is not somebody who flirts with the word faith heresy he full on believes it and teaches it uh they have this really bad habit of reading themselves into just about every single passage you can possibly think of even ones that pertain to Jesus now until i heard this sermon i had never heard anyone do anything quite like this and that is taking one of jesus's statements uh, uh, from the cross uh, they they talk about jesus's seven words from the cross taking one of jesus's seven words from the cross so that that's the the biblical you know context for the sermon is is that he begins i think in john chapter 19 at the crucifixion and he takes one of Jesus' seven words from the cross, and he literally makes it about his life and yours. I am not joking. I mean, this, I, as far as I'm concerned, any pastor who would take a, a passage of Scripture that deals directly with Jesus, especially regarding his passion, suffering, and death for us on the cross, for our sins and for our salvation, and turns it into something about you or about me or about the pastor— that pastor should automatically be defrocked. I mean, it. it you know, here's the deal. I mean, if if let's 
work with me for a second. Let's pretend that I owned a car that could really go fast. Maybe I went out and bought one of those retro, you know, brand new retro cars that you know Dodge and and Chevy's putting out, like maybe like a Camaro or you, you understand what I'm saying, and and or a Mustang, you know, just and I went out and got the Shelby job, put on the Mustang, and and so I decided that what I was going to do was take the car out to a stretch in the Nevada desert. You know, on one of those less traveled um, desert highways, and see how far I could get. You know, the um, yeah, what speed I could get the car up to. So you know, I made the trip out there. You know, to Nevada. Let's pretend I made it out there, and you know, I found a long stretch of road, straight highway. I mean, literally, the only thing you could see are rocks and little, you know, like shrubs, you know, if you're familiar with the Nevada desert. So, you know, I put the car, you know, in neutral, then put it in the first gear and put the hammer down and just let loose. You know, and, and, you know, and got the car just flat out. You know, I was doing 120, 130, 135. Come on, you can make it to 140. And all of a sudden I look in my rearview mirror. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the deal. There are speeds at which you travel in particular states that uh, if you are clocked at that speed, you automatically lose your license. Just that's the way it goes. And so at that point, I'd be walking home from the middle of the Nevada desert. Now, in a similar way, I am absolutely convinced there are certain things that a pastor, that if he does it, uh, if he does that with a biblical text, he should automatically lose all preaching privileges for the rest of his life. Okay. When somebody takes a biblical, takes one of the biblical texts about Jesus, especially that's re- really referring to him, especially the ones that are where it's talking about Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, and they and they engage in narsa Jesus using those biblical texts. That's somebody who has no clue what Christianity is about. That is somebody who has no qualifications to be a pastor. And if they do something like that, they should forever be banned from even publicly reading a verse okay this is one of those things that you know this this goes to the point where yeah at this point i'm sorry you're not qualified to be a pastor ever hand in your you know hand in the keys you don't get your parking space we want your bible your commentaries oh you didn't have commentaries oh oh okay um yeah whatever um scholarly resources that you may have used for your sermon prep oh you didn't have any of those either um, okay, well, just give us your Bible and and, uh, and we'll take the parking lot and the keys to the building. Yeah, you're not allowed in the building ever again. Get out of here. If you show up, we're gonna, you know, have the police called. You know, we'll have you arrested for trespassing. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying. Anyway, so that's uh, hour number two. We're gonna be uh, looking at that. Um, let's see here. I've got a oh man, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse update. Um, let's see, Ed Young, um, boy, I got two things I want to talk about from Ed Young, and then I've got a story entitled Of the Sacred and the Profane by Jeff Mahoney. Um, yeah, I don't think I want to talk about that one quite yet, but, uh, just, just trust me when I tell you that, uh, this, there's pieces of this episode of Fighting for the Faith, um, that could cause, well, bad things to happen, drops in productivity, frustrative 
disbelief, brain ex- explosion, you know, things like that. So I, yeah, I probably should play the warning here. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Putting on the Ritz. Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes and coat, a white coat, perfect fits. Putting on the Ritz. Dress up like a million dollar trooper. Trying hard to look like Gary Cooper. Super duper. Putting on the Ritz. Yeah, all right. Yeah, that's uh, we're going to be doing an Ed Young update. And um, Ed Young uh, has just concluded his um, Creative Pastors um, conference. And uh, as part of the conference, he actually created a website called pastorfashion.com where he gives uh, um, fashion tips to... um, Pastors, I mean, yeah, because you know, if putting on the Ritz is really important nowadays in ministry, and so here, here's Ed Young explaining um, some very cogent, very important uh, fashion tips for you all. Hi, welcome to PastorsFashion.com. We're having an awesome time at the C3 conference, and we're launching this this site. It's going to be wonderful. Not that we become fashion crazy, but People definitely look at what people wear, and you are what you wear, and and who are you wearing? Obviously, we're clothed in Christ, but we should do the best with what we have. Yeah, you know, we're clothed in Christ, but we should do the best with what we have. So, who are you wearing? You know, um, um, <laughs> Hanes beefy tea and <laughs> Wrangler. Um, that's who I'm wearing. I, you know, I just find it odd that no one ever comes to me for fashion advice. Hmm. You know, I have. Worn today Spanx. That's right. Uh, what? Spanx for men. And let me show them to you. They're really cool. They're the kind of compression, and they, they keep everything in those muffin tops, etc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I passed the muffin top stage a long time ago. Do they have Spanx for guys like me? Guys, we even wear them. I've only worn worn them twice, and they're good. But when you sit down, it does kind of mm, give you. It kind of compresses, and you have a lot of gas. Well, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh yeah, this this is a really lucid fashion advice here. Yeah, so he's recommending yeah that uh, for those of you guys out there with muffin tops. Now again, I've passed the muffin top stage a long time ago, but uh, those of you who are just at the muffin top stage, you know, if you want to kind of hold everything in. 
Spanx are well. That's the important thing to do, especially if you're in ministry. But keep this in mind: that one of the uh, unwanted negative side effects of Spanx is that it causes gas. Oh man! That'd be one thing that's the downside of Spanx: it gives you gas. Number two, it kind of restricts you. A good thing about Spanx is it, it helps your posture. It holds everything in, and and, and you f- except for the gas. <laughs> Feel more athletic. I feel like an NFL wide receiver or or running back or something like that. So hey, Spanx, uh, uh, pick up a couple of pair, try them. You can wear more form-fitting suits and things with a a, a guiltless conscience because of Spanx. So get your Spanx today. So there you go. Fashion advice from Ed. Young, oh man, uh, you know, I might as well do this story while we're here. I mean, since we're talking about Ed Young, he uh, recently got some ink in the uh, Christian Post, worth passing along, so uh, let's do this. From the Christian Post, Ed Young on sex experiment and why his preaching style is not gimmicky. Well, if his preaching style isn't gimmicky, then, well, I'm skinny. Anyway, um, Ed Young, a founding and senior pastor of Fellowship Church, has drawn international attention for his new sex experiment series after staging a 24-hour bed-in with his wife atop his church. Yeah, tw- yeah, it was a publicity stunt is what that was. That was a publicity sp- stunt, and boy, did he pay the price for it. I mean, <laughs> I saw the video of... <laughs> Ed Young, just like a day and a half later at the the Code Orange revival, apparently you know, he whirled up the uh, the private jet and made the uh, the trip from Dallas to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, in order to um, preach at the Code Orange revival. And literally, you know, I'm just telling you, sunburns and Botox don't go together. It, and and not only that, he he burned his cornea. I mean, it's. Yeah, but he says he's absolutely convinced this is not gimmicky. Uh, some Christians even called the attempt to get people talking about sex gimmicky. But according to the evangelical mega pastor, his preaching is not is not gimmicky, but it's God driven. Re- really? Um, so God drove you to burn your Botox on the top of your church for twenty four hours? God driven? Oh yeah. See, just got <laughs> it's not gimmicky. No, 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 no. Hang on a second here. Let's let's do this. Um, M-W.com. Hang, I'm going to look up the word gimmick at the Merriam-Webster's website. G-I-M-M-I-C-K. Let's see here. Okay, gimmick. Okay. A gimmick, an important feature that is not immediately apparent, an ingenious and usually a new scheme or angle, a trick or a device used to attract business or, atten- or attention, uh, a marketing gimmick. Hmm. Trick or device used to attract attract business or to attract attention. Hmm. Well, it seems to me that the 24 hours... Well, he didn't quite make it the whole 24 hours, but the, the whole idea of um, spending 24 hours on the roof with your wife in bed sounds gimmicky to me. Um, but he's... Oh, no, that's not gimmicky. That's God-driven. Oh, okay. In an interview with the Christian Post, Young said the bed-in event to promote sex experiments, seven days to lasting intimacy with your spouse, and his other out-of-the-box approaches to preaching, including a Ferrari on his church stage last year, they were all inspired by Jesus. Hmm. That's an interesting word, don't you think? Inspired? 
because we learn in the scriptures that all of God, all the scriptures are God breathed. And we talk about God's word being inspired. So here's the deal. Ed Young here is claiming that everything, you know, the, the 24 hours on top of the roof with his wife where he burned his Botox, uh, the Ferrari on his stage and all of the things that he, these aren't gimmicks. No, 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 no. He's inspired by Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. Direct word from God. So if you're challenging him, critiquing him or saying it's gimmicky or stuff like that, well, yeah, you need to take it up with Jesus because Jesus inspired Ed Young to do that. In other words, you're sinning because it was Jesus's will for him to do all those gimmicky, I'm sorry, God-driven things. And if uh, you're challenging or saying there's something wrong with that, well, you, you, I'm sorry, you're sinning. You are going against the explicit will of Jesus that Jesus inspired um, Ed Young to do. Quote, <clears throat> we are simply doing what Jesus did. He was a multi-sensory communicator. He uses words and pictures to tell stories like no other. Uh-huh. That, that's what we're doing. It's simple as that. Our philosophy is actually a couple of thousand years old. We're just doing what he did. Really, um, I can't think of any of the gimmicky things that um, Jesus did. You know what's really funny? Hang on a second here. Um, I just... I'm having my memory go, you know, and, and, and you know, as I get older, you know, my memory is not quite what it used to be. But um, I do recall something about Jesus being tempted to be gimmicky. Hmm. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Um. All right. So, uh, uh, Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four, starting at verse one. Jesus was led by the Spirit. So Jesus, by the way, in chapter three here in Matthew, Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist. And immediately he was driven out by the spirit, driven out into the wilderness and uh, was you know, basically tended to by angels. But um, here we read uh, Matthew chapter four, verse one, Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered as written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning him and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Sounds like a gimmick. So Jesus was taken to the roof of the temple. Sound familiar? And was told, throw yourself down. You know, kind of a gimmick. You know, everyone's going to love you, Jesus, if you'd pull that miracle off. Jesus said, again, is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Hmm. It seems like Jesus kind of resisted the gimmicky. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, um, hmm. Yeah, in fact, I wouldn't even call Jesus' parables to be gimmicks either. If anything, uh, Jesus makes it clear that the reason why he spoke in parables was not to be gimmicky, but in order, well, that those who had ears but did not hear and eyes that did not see wouldn't hear and understand what he was saying. His What he was preaching was kind of veiled. So, I mean, drawing this connection, well, I'd call me in, you know, unbelieving at this point, I... Um, I just don't think the connection is really there, even though Ed Young claims it. Anyway, Young continues, most churches today preach 70% information and only 30% application in the sermons, he said. But if they were following Jesus' style of preaching, they'd do it the other way around. See, almost 70% of Jesus' words in the gospel were words of application. In other words, 
the so what principle of the doing stuff. 30% were, were words of information. The church kind of got that backwards, argued Young. Oh, okay, so yeah, application. Yeah. Where does the Bible tell us to um, uh, apply a seven-day sex challenge? I don't find that application scripture. Anyway, shrugging off criticism, Ed Young added, so the Christians should be the most creative, the most multisensory teachers and, t- and leaders at, ev- at en- and everything else. For people to criticize that, they don't even know the Bible. They're not even reading the Bible, in my opinion. So if you criticize Ed Young, you don't even know your Bible. You don't even read it. Ed Young doesn't want to have anything to do with you. It's clear to him that you don't even know your Bible. Uh-huh, right. And yet again, um, hmm, I think that uh, just using the standard definition of gimmicky, we can say that Ed Young is very gimmicky. And not only that, it seems like every time I review an Ed Young sermon, I catch him twisting God's word. It's as if he doesn't even read it or know it. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, all right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, Uh, canceled the adult Bible study, dumped the hymnals, sacked the choir, and put in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose. Our two weapons are purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance. Our three weapons are purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren. Our four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. 
nobody uh, expects uh, expects no nobody expects the um, purpose driven inquisition. Uh, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven Inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do... chief ex- weapons are... Our chief weapons are... Um, purpose. Uh, uh, vision. Okay, and- okay, stop, stop that, stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now... How do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, when a pastor does a gimmick and then says it's not a gimmick, it's God-driven, that doesn't mean that it wasn't a gimmick. You know, just listen, words mean things, and gimmick means that, and he was gimmicky. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, donate. The other says, join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 Oh, yeah. William Tapley update. Right? Right? 
It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Bum, 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 bum. All right, yeah, that's our William Tapley. Third Eagle of the Apocalypse update. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, so here, <laughs> you know, it's probably just best not to even try to explain it, just to let him go ahead and do his thing. But let me just put it this way. Um, yeah, <laughs> William Tapley sees things in the news headlines that ain't nobody see. Um, <laughs> the death of passing of Whitney Houston, uh, well, has sent him into a prophetic tailspin, and he's got to share with us his prophetic insight. Uh, here's William Tapley. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the co-prophet of the End Times. Who is he co-profiting again with? Quite a few of my YouTube subscribers have asked me to comment on the meaning and the numerical significance of the tragic death of the singer Whitney Houston. And I agree with them. This was a warning from Almighty God. <laughs> really? God's warning the world by taking away Whitney Houston? To the United States of America and to our President Barack Obama. I am convinced that God took Whitney Houston at a particular time to give us a warning. And first I want to take a look at an incident which occurred last fall to show how God does use numerology to explain biblical prophecy and to warn someone who is found in Bible prophecy, and that is President Barack Obama. Last fall, Oscar Ramirez Ortega Hernandez fired nine rounds from an AK-47 at the White House, and this occurred on November 11th. Now, this was a warning from God, and he uses numerology. For example, Oscar Ramirez Ortega Hernandez has four names. That's quite unusual. But Barack Obama's number in Bible prophecy is the number four. And four is also an end times number. And he fired nine rounds on the 11th of November. Of course, we know that 9-11 is a warning to America. We've seen that before. But what God is warning us about can be found in Daniel 11, verse 40. And Why wouldn't it be Daniel 11, verse 11? I, you know, I'm confused. And at the time of the end, now that means that this is an end times prophecy, Shall the king of the south attack him? The king of the south refers to Barack Obama. That's because his forebears came from Kenya, which is due south of Jerusalem. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Boy, my mind is spinning. How about yours? Now, the king of the north would be the premier of Russia, because Russia is due north of Jerusalem. With chariots, and with horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries. Now the two countries are Britain and America primarily, and shall overflow and pass through. What does this have to do with somebody firing an AK-47 on 11-11-11? I, yeah, you lost me. Now overflowing and passing through means that Russia's victory over the United States will be complete. 
Jeremiah also prophesies about World War III. In chapter 50, verse 41, Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation, now this would be Russia, and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. Now the many kings in this case means most of the countries of the world. These are the same as the ten horns on the scarlet beast in the book of Revelation. And Jeremiah continues, They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and will not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. How is it that you're sticking Jeremiah 50 and Daniel 11 together? I never learned any of this when I was, you know, in Bible college. And none of my apologetics, um, Bible courses, not my Greek course, my Hebrew course, any of the theology courses. And then I didn't learn any of this stuff. And they shall ride upon horses, everyone set in array, like a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. And the daughter of Babylon is the United States. Now, if... So, the... the um... The United States is the daughter of Babylon. Okay. Babylon, in this passage from Jeremiah, represents the United States. Then the king of Babylon... How do you know it doesn't represent Ed Young and his gimmicks? I mean, are you sure? ...is Barack Obama. The king of Babylon has heard the report of them, and his hands grew feeble. Anguish took hold of him, and birth pangs as of a woman... In travail. So Barack Obama is a woman in the travail of birth pangs, and he's um, wringing his hands? I haven't seen that yet. Now, this shooting at the White House last year was a warning to America and to our president about these passages from Bible prophecy. Glad you were on YouTube to point that out, because I totally missed that. Of course, we need to remember... That all Bible prophecy is conditional. It is conditional upon our response. With repentance... Really, all Bible prophecy is conditional upon our response. Can I shoot that down? Oh, please, pick me. Yeah, let's let's go with, like, you know, one of the prophecies regarding Jesus, okay? That, you know, like from the Isaiah prophecy, and uh, and the virgin will be with child and, and, and you know, and give birth and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, what was the condition there? Hmm? Um, I can't think of any condition at all. Like none. None of the, that prophecy wasn't conditional. God fulfilled it in his proper time. Hmm. Um, how about the prophecy like in Psalm 22 about Jesus' hands and feet being pierced? What was the condition of that, by the way? Yeah, I, I just, <clears throat> I'm not thinking that uh, all prophecies are conditional. I'm challenging that, yeah. America could avoid World War III. But have we repented? I believe the death of Whitney Houston proves that we have not repented. There are a lot of amazing parallels between the shooting last fall at the White House and the tragic death of Whitney Houston. Yeah, I haven't seen anybody else draw these conclusions. In fact, we see in Whitney Houston's own name that an abbreviation of the word White House can be found. That's right. Yeah, If you take the first four letters of Whitney's first name, W-H-I-T, and the first four letters of her last name, Houston, uh, it, well, it it's the word White House without any ease. It's just, it's Whithoos. And she died at the age of 48. Of course, eight can be expressed as four plus four. 
And as we know, 444 is Barack Obama's number in Bible prophecy. No, I, I, I'm still not convinced on that one. Particularly in Daniel 7, verse number 6. And Whitney Houston was born on the 9th of a month, and she died on the 11th of a month. 9-11, wow. Therefore, this is also a warning to America. And everybody else missed the warning. Don't here's the deal, uh, uh, Mister. Uh, do I call you Mister Third Eagle or Mister Co Prophet? Um, yeah. Here's the deal. Don't you think that if this was really a warning from God, you know, like a full blown warning, you need to repent, change course, do a one eighty, or else. You know, the Daniel 11, Jeremiah 50 stuff's going to happen to y'all. Um, don't you think that if this was really a warning from God, that God wouldn't make the warning so impossibly cryptic? I mean, I mean I, I'm sorry, but I don't think America's best supercomputers, when it comes to cracking foreign uh, signal codes, uh, could possibly have drawn these connections. I mean... You're the only one seeing this as a warning from God. Um, don't you find that a little bit problematic? I mean, if God was going to really warn, you know, because in the Old Testament, we have clear warnings from God to the people of Israel, calling them to repent, to be forgiven, to return to God, and he will forgive them. And if they don't, he's going to, ex well, basically invoke the uh, the punishment clauses of the Mosaic law, you know. Um, that and, and when the prophets spoke back then, I mean, these weren't vague, ambiguous, cryptic warnings from God. They were like clear as crystal, in-your-face warnings. So why on earth should I believe that God the Holy Spirit is warning America through the death of Whitney Houston uh, when the warning is so, I mean... What's the word I'm looking for? Obtuse? Uh, hidden? Uh, covered up? Uh, impossible to decipher? I mean, what kind of God would will use this, this warning as a warning? I mean, if God's going to warn somebody, don't you think he really would mean it? I mean, at least that's what he's done in the past. I'm just... Anyway, you get what I'm saying. So, you know, just weird stuff from uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse. Moving along. are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra. You will note that they are free from the modernistic limiting definitions of notes. And they are led by the Spirit as they joyfully make this noise for all of us to experience.
Bravo, bravo, tour de force. Uh, just amazing stuff there. Anyway, f- <laughs> that's uh, when we talk about things that have to do with emergent postmodern liberalism. Well, uh, that would include the crazy things going on in the mainline denominations. Now, um, I'm reading from a website entitled, uh, well, it's called thespec.com, thespec.com, thespec.com. And uh, this is written by Jeff Mahoney, and the name of the article is Of the Sacred and the Profane. Uh, I warn you ahead of time, uh, what you're about to hear may not be appropriate for little ears. Just, you know, saying, you know. Jeff writes, he says, I was at the Christ's Church Cathedral on Tuesday for a special performance of the vagina monologues. Eve... (laughs) Ensler's still controversial, not to mention funny, play about some defining things that make a girl a woman and a girl a girl, or a woman a woman and a girl a girl. I got photographs, by the way, of, uh, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different female um, uh, pastrixes. Yeah, there's no such thing, by the way. Biblically, there are no such things as pastrixes. By the way, of Jesus' 12 disciples, mm -hmm, the the original 12 that he picked, how many were women? This is a trick question here. Of the the authors of the New Testament, how many of them were women? Um, Okay. And of the Old Testament authors, how many of them were uh, women? Yeah, this points something out to you here. Anyway, uh, we continue. Throughout the evening, words were spoken that presumably had never been heard before in this hallowed space. Four-letter words with some of uh, were some of them with hard consonants resounding profanely in the Gothic revival splendor of vaulted ceilings, stained glass, and fluted columns. The hundreds who fi- uh, filled uh, the church on this night would frequently drown out the sound of these words, not with indignant protest or indignant protest, but with laughter. So there you go at a... Um, at Christ's Church, um, the vagina monologues, and uh, people showed up in droves to hear these women pastrixes. There's no such thing. Um, well, do a reading of the vagina monologues. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, they, they, and unfortunately, they weren't drowned out by people being indignant by what they were doing, profaning a holy space like that. But uh, no, no, no. They were just laughing. And ah, this is the funniest thing ever. <clears throat> Jeff then writes, he says, I was shocked. You might imagine a mainstream church with its pews full. The cathedral on James North, the centerpiece of the Anglican Diocese of Niagara, was built uh, between 1852 and 1876. Back then, they didn't envision plays in the church, certainly not with such language and content, and certainly not with the lines being delivered by ordained Anglican priestesses, pastrics. Uh, back then, they really would have been shocked, you might imagine, but most, mostly because these those ordained priests were worst outrage of all women. Eight of them, female Anglican priests from Niagara Falls, St. Catherine's, Gloof, uh, Cuyahoga, Hamilton. They dressed in black vestments and red scarves and at least one in stiletto heels. Some, even now, will find it offensive that something called the vagina monologues was staged in a church at a sacred place that priests said the F word and worse. 
Of course, part of the rationale behind presenting this particular play in this context is to point out the irony of our various outrages. People, especially women, have traditionally been told to shut up about things like, well, sex and genitalia, especially when in the realm of religion, reserved as it is for higher matters like morality, soul, and justice. Yet most world religions even now are interested enough in genitals that they exclude half of the world from offices such as priesthood solely on the basis of what's between people's legs. Justice? Some may say sex has no place in the church, but better the vagina monologues openly from the altar than abuse that swept under the carpet. The eight... Pastrixes brought to their large audience the gift of recognition without shame or judgment, which was both hilarious and poignant, if not always subtle. They were rewarded with howls of mirth and applause and a most spontaneous standing ovation. This, at the end of 16 monologues, there were stories of the gynecological exam room with paper dresses and speculums, hilarious of sexually of sexual awakenings, tender and ribald of humiliation, rape and persecution here and abroad, harrowing and and of and courage and love inspiring. And the last story was called "I Was There in the Room" about watching a woman give birth, about a baby being born. This one hit with full force. I was there in a room like that twice, three years apart. It's some it's some room. Even the door said push. Uh, there was language, there was expletiveness, graphic content, nudity. Still, I have to say, it it might have been the most sacred place in which I ever stood. I watched them come out. I didn't know what they'd be. We didn't want to, but because they were born without clothes, as tends to be the case, I could see right away both times what they were, baby girls, you know how I knew. Uh, the proceeds from the performance benefit the Women's Center of Hamilton and the Sexual Assault crisis line and it was presented by the v-day global movement to end violence against women and girls uh, then now there's something to believe in so the vagina monologues will be staged again on february 14th when that just passed at st george's anglican church 83 church street in st Catharines. you can buy tickets online for 20 bucks a piece so there you go sacred space being used to perform the vagina monologues I, I don't see how this is any different than what Ed Young does. Both of them are gimmicky, don't you think? has absolutely nothing to do with what Christ has called the church to do, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. has nothing to do with sound biblical doctrine. This is all a distraction from people who, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, don't really strike me as people who really believe Christianity because... They seem to be distracted doing everything else other than preaching it and teaching it. All right, we are up on our second break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be listening to a Brian Houston sermon, Brian Houston of uh, Hillsong out in Sydney, Australia. See how he handles the biblical text. See if he's really qualified to be a pastor. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to meet my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death 
of a salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from Down Under, from Australia, Sydney, from Hillsong, led by Brian Houston. Name of the sermon, When Something's Over, Don't Stop. Now, Hillsong in the American evangelical world as well. An influential Christian church. Brian Houston, an influential Christian pastor. They have ambassadors flying around the world and preaching in mega churches all over the world. You know, the guy, uh, well, gals like Christine Kane. So we're going to just ask a simple question. Is Brian Houston rightly handling God's word here, or is he... Um, committed an exegetical offense that technically should bar him from ever preaching ever again. Yeah, I'm not joking when I say that. Alright, let me kill the music. So without any further ado, here is Brian Houston and his ser- sermon? Uh, when something's over, don't stop. Here we go. John 19. Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. 
Man, can you imagine those words and the emotions that they brought to the people who had put all their faith in Jesus. When Jesus said, it is finished. And if you want to turn to the verse, it's in John, Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 28 will start. Verse 28. We're going we're gonna to start at verse 28 in the Passion narrative regarding Jesus in the Gospel of John. Really, we're going to get a verse. Watch this. It says, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, man, he's saying it's done, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it on his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In verse 33, it says, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. The two Okay, um, you know, let me point something out to you here, okay? You have your Bible. Flip on over to, well, like 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, okay? Now, I mean, normally when a, a, a sermon begins with a passion narrative, whew, man, usually that that's rejoicing time as far as I'm concerned. Why? Because we're going to hear about, well, the gospel, right? First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, it says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Great stuff, right? Yeah, and you know, so Paul chose to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified for our sins. Now, you would think that a sermon that begins with, well, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, that uh, we're going to be hearing all about Christ and him crucified for our sins, right? Well, in fact, let's add some context to this. I mean, let's, if you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. I'll start at verse 1. You know, if this is not at the very beginning of the Passion narrative. But this is partway through uh, Jesus' sufferings. He hadn't been crucified at this point, but he's still before Pilate. And uh, But uh, let's, let's pick up the story and let's read about this. Let's see what Jesus, our great God and Savior, did for us. And find out, see if we can figure out from the text what is meant by the word, it is finished, or tetelestai in the Greek. So, Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 1. Here's what it says. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and then they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out, and again he said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, 
Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered his headquarters and again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat in the place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the, the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, and the place at the place called the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather that this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, soldier, also his tunic. For the tunic was seamless and woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill what the scriptures say. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See Psalm chapter 22, verse 18. Direct prophecy regarding Jesus' crucifixion. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now this is important. I'm going to a little side note here. Church history tells us that the Apostle John cared for Mary as his own mother. And when John became the bishop of the churches in Ephesus, church history tells us that, that John became the, the bishop, the head, the head guy of the churches in Ephesus, that Mary, Jesus' mother, was with him. So he cared for her. So this, I mean, this amazing stuff that we're seeing going on here. So after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. 
a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a, on a sponge full of the sour wine on hyssop and a branch and held it to his mouth. Now I'm going to pause here. I, want to, I just read through the, the verse, but it's important that we stop for a second and consider what the Apostle John wrote here. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. What was finished? What had he accomplished? What was Jesus doing on the cross other than suffering a shameful, horrible, brutal, painful death? What was he accomplishing? What was finished? What what on earth is is John talking about here? Well, let's take a look at um Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Jesus here is high and lifted up, is he not? As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was has not been told them, they see, and that which they had not heard, they understand. So here, uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesying about Jesus says that Jesus is going to be high and exalted, and truly he was. Jesus stood naked, bruised, beaten, scourged, and marred beyond all recognition. And he was crucified between heaven and earth on a cross high and lifted up, right? Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Do we not do we not just read about how the Jews despised Jesus and wanted him crucified? Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the will of Yahweh, the Lord, to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Interesting, isn't it? What is it that Jesus had accomplished? Dying for propitiating the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. So when we get to this John chapter 19, verse 28, after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished, what was finished? The salvation of the world. The propitiation of God's wrath. Him being punished for all of our sins. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. This is important because Jesus is, one of his pictures is the Passover lamb. You don't break the legs of a Passover lamb. And sad but true, Jesus died at the same time that all the Passover lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover. There's no mistaking who this man is, who he was, well, and who he is. They came to Jesus. They did not break his leg. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw this is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So why did, the gospel, why did John write these things down? So that you would believe. What is it that Jesus accomplished? Your salvation. Your sins being laid on God, on Jesus Christ. All of your sins being atoned for, God's wrath being propitiated, all for you. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Or as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, and God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that little mini lesson, if you would, regarding what Christ was accomplishing on the cross so that we understand the words, it is finished, is necessary for us to, to know and to understand, to embrace and to believe. If you're hearing this program and you are not a Christian, then know this, that you still remain under the wrath of God. 
Scripture is clear. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you know that you stand guilty before a holy and just God. You have murderous, adulterous thoughts, words, deeds. You are an idolater. You are somebody who has despised and dishonored your parents. You have stolen. You have coveted. You have done all kinds of wicked and evil things. And these things you know, and it goes all the way back to your childhood. You can remember the evil things that you have committed all the way from the earliest memories you have as a child. And the reason why you have such memories is because you, like the rest of us, me included, were born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. But here's the good news. The punishment that you earned for your sins, Christ took upon himself. He was pierced for your transgressions. He was bruised for your iniquities. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He made Jesus, God made the Father, made Jesus to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. God is offering you full and complete pardon of your sins because the price and penalty has been paid in full by his beloved son, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, all for you. So repent of your wickedness, repent of your evil deeds, and be forgiven and be reconciled to God. Because God has reconciled himself to you. Don't persist in sin and unbelief and send yourself to hell. Those are perditious thoughts that lead to perdition. And it's completely unnecessary. God has reconciled himself to you, so be reconciled to God. Repent and be forgiven. Jesus shed his blood for you. And lest you think for a second that this good news only applies to an unbeliever, dear Christian, let me remind you that it's this very gospel that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that he chose to know nothing except for Christ and him crucified for our sins that we Christians need to hear daily, weekly, and constantly. Because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you understand that we are declared righteous, but when you live out your life and you compare your life to what God's word calls us to do, you realize that daily you fall short of God's commands and his high moral standards set for us in scripture. This good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins, what he accomplished on the cross and said and cried out to tell us it is finished. It applies to you, dear Christian. So be comforted with the good news that Jesus finished all of it for you. This good news is not just for unbelievers. This good news is the very life, blood, and center of the Christian message itself. And when Jesus said, it is finished, well, it's done. There's nothing that you have to do to earn your salvation. And your sanctification and the sanctifying work of God in your life, of God the Holy Spirit, does not... That's not the contingency of your salvation. It is finished. You don't add to what Christ has done. He has done it all for you. And just like the unbeliever, we daily wrestle with unbelief ourselves and with a sin that inheres in our flesh and the devil in his temptations. Repent. Be forgiven. Trust in the finished work of Christ for the forgiveness of even your sins, because his shed blood saves even you, dear Christian, because he said 
it is finished. He didn't say it has started. He said it's finished. Your sanctification doesn't determine your justification. Christ shed blood on the cross, accomplished everything for you. Repent and believe and trust in what he has done. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second just to recoup. We're doing a sermon review that begins with part of Jesus' passion and suffering, where Jesus cries out, It is finished. Okay, that's the context. I'm going to back up the audio just a little bit. We're only one minute into the sermon. Watch what happens. He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In verse 33, it says, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. The two thieves... They broke their legs and normally to carry him away, they would break his legs. They didn't break his legs, but much more important than that, they never broke his spirit. He said, I give up my spirit. But he didn't say, I give up. He said, I give up my spirit. Uh, this is taking a bad turn, really. So we're supposed to learn from this that Jesus didn't, quote, give up. Huh? And when Jesus said, it is finished, he never said he was finished. He said, it is finished. Sometimes in our life, we face things that look like they're finished. Perhaps they are. Let me back this up. Did you see the transition? He's now engaging in narcissistic eisegesis regarding the crucifixion passage. Watch the transition. He never said he was finished. He said it is finished. Sometimes in our life, we face things that look like they're finished. Perhaps. Yeah, I haven't faced a crucifixion where I was completely innocent, where the sins of the world were placed on me. How about you? Have you done? I mean, at this point, talk about missing the whole point. He's now engaging in narcissism, narcissistic eisegesis, taking the story, allegorizing, missing the whole point. Do you think that the, 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 the Apostle John wrote this passion narrative of Jesus' sufferings and death so that we can draw from it inspiration in our own lives to not give up in tough circumstances? Was that the reason? No, not at all. And the Apostle John made it clear. He said that he recorded these things so that we might believe in Jesus, so that we would trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. The thing that he accomplished and said was finished was the very reconciliation and atoning work necessary so that we can be forgiven of our sins and a right relationship with God established by what he has done for us. No, so what he's basically doing at this point is taking Jesus' words from the cross and turning him into a Hallmark greeting card. Just like Jesus didn't give up, you need to not give up either. You draw inspiration from his, the way he did things, so that you can just, you know, in your tough circumstances and boo-boos and setbacks in your life, you can have a stick-to-it attitude. Talk about missing the point. He said, it is finished. Sometimes in our life, we face things that look like they're finished. Perhaps 
They are finished. It may be abrupt. Maybe it even was something that you didn't expect a marriage came to an end. You were made redundant in your job. Uh, so you're, you, you lost your marriage and you became redundant in your job. Because, yeah, yeah, those are the same thing as crucifixion. You face bankruptcy. Perhaps even... And all of these things are the fruit and consequences of our sin. Something as tragic as a loved one's death. And we can be totally rolled by what has ended and not understand that. Listen to this. There's a huge difference between the end of an era or the end of a time in your life and the completion of a destiny. He was not finished. Yeah, see, Jesus was pointing us the importance of understanding the difference between end of a thing and the end of a destiny. Uh huh. That's why he was hanging on the cross. Right. It was finished. And I just know how easy it is to come to an end of a time in your life. Maybe. Yeah, you know, come to an end of a time in your life. You know, just like Jesus came to the end of a time in his, yeah, he came, well, it came to the end of his life. It was just time for something to end. Or perhaps even sadly, it's because we sowed in a certain way. What it brought was an end that we never wanted or imagined, or perhaps it was completely undeserved. But in Christ. Yeah, you, you're just as innocent as Jesus was. You know, that thing that happened to you, completely undeserved. It may be finished, but you're not finished. He is, Revelation 22 says, the beginning and the end. He's the beginning and the end. Yeah, you know, because he's the end so that he can point you to how to get through things when they come to an end in your life. Complete mishandling of under, of the understanding that Jesus is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. It's basically a way of saying that Jesus is everything. He's all in all. Why? Because he's God. But when Jesus said, it is finished, it was the end, but... He doesn't just own the end. He is the beginning. So, Jesus born on earth. This is narcissistic eisegesis. I mean, completely, I mean, it is a crime. It is a crime that should lead to automatic defrocking and drumming out of any pastor who does this kind of stuff, especially one who takes the crucifixion passage and makes it about you. With the beginning, Jesus saying it's finished and dying on a cross was an end. But after the end was the beginning of a much bigger day and a much greater thing. The truth is that the end only ushered in a better thing. And that is the life 
that comes through a resurrected Jesus. And sometimes we face an end. And when we face an end, just like perhaps the disciples at that moment, there would have been some who were just absolutely bewildered. There would be some who were so disappointed. There would be some who felt abandoned or rejected or lonely. There were those who were involved who would have felt all sorts of guilt. There were all sorts of emotions finished. But because they didn't necessarily have the complete understanding, the complete revelation, Jesus had told them much. And of course, even their Old Testament Scriptures told them much, but they didn't have an absolute understanding that that what they saw finishing here didn't mean all that Jesus had said would now be possible. No matter what end you may be facing in your life, Maybe it is the end of a relationship. Whatever end you're facing, you, you can just you know plow through it because you know Jesus's resurrection shows that the end of the thing in your life. Well, that's just the really the beginning, right? Maybe it is the end of a season when you trust God and believe that He is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and you understand that God has for you a God-given destiny, and if maybe that point... Really, God has for me a God-given destiny. This is not the biblical gospel. And notice, even though he he started off with a text that deals with Christ's cross, he hasn't preached the gospel. He hasn't called the sinners there at Hillsong to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, which was accomplished and finished, to tell us die, by Jesus on the cross. This is a false gospel, a different gospel. Nowhere does it promise you in Scripture that God has a God-given destiny for you because you're so special point in your life is finished, but the destiny is not fulfilled, then don't just get ruled by that ending, but understand that God has for you a greater beginning in Jesus' name. What an amazing thing that is. But see, here's the sad thing. So often people come to an end and they think and they live like it's over. And you know, the Lord is the beginning and the end. But the devil who is a usurper, would love to usurp the end, where it finishes, what the outcome is in your life. I'd love you to turn with me just for a moment to Matthew chapter 13, verse 37. That's the parable of the tares. He answered and said, he who sows... Now, please turn over to Matthew chapter 13 because watch what he does with this text. It's unbelievable. The good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Now listen, but the tares, which are for the sake of time, I guess like weeds, are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age. Okay, now we're going to pause right here. Okay. This is a parable that Jesus taught and Jesus interpreted. He gets, you don't get to have a different interpretation than Jesus does. Okay, plain and simple. When Jesus interprets the parable, the parable and its interpretation stand 
by themselves, and your interpretation doesn't get to deviate from Jesus's. So if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24 begins, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Well, then do you want us to go and gather them? No, he said, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at that harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so Jesus tells the parable. And, of course, the disciples did not understand it. Um, that's, that's important to note. They did not get this. So they actually went to Jesus and asked him to explain the parable of the weeds. So Jesus then interprets this parable that he told. So here's the right, singular, correct way of understanding the parable of the weeds. Are you ready? Verse 36 of chapter 13. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed, son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay? So there's the parable and its interpretation. What is this parable about? In a nutshell, it is literally a compressed story of what's going wrong in the world. The world is what God created. And the devil sows weeds in among the wheat, even though God planted good seed. And there is a day coming, the day of judgment, the last day, the day at the end of this age, when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, and he will send his angels out into the harvest field, and they will gather the weeds and throw them into the fiery furnace. He will throw them into hell, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the good seed, the good, the wheat, will be gathered together and they will be they, the righteous. They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. That is what this parable is about. Jesus interprets it. There is no other sound interpretation of this passage. If your interpretation deviates from Jesus' interpretation, you are twisting Christ's words and you are a false teacher. Let's back this up. Listen in. 
The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Now listen, but the tares, which are for the sake of time, I guess like weeds, are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age. So what the enemy would love to do is replace the good seeds in your life. He's twisting God's word. No, this is not about the enemy trying to replace the good seeds in your life. If you are a believer, you are wheat. If you are an unbeliever, a sinner, and a lawbreaker, you are weed. Plain and simple. So now he's allegorizing Jesus' interpretation in order to smuggle in a completely different and foreign interpretation. This is Bible twisting of the worst kind. Is the end of the age. So what the enemy would love to do is replace the good seeds in your life with tears. Or perhaps, if you like, with thinking. Or with a spirit of defeat. Understanding that this usurper, what he would love to be... Yeah, Jesus never talked about a spirit of defeat. You're usurping Christ's interpretation of his own parable, sir. ...be able to change is the end of the age when it comes to eternal things, but bring it all the way down to our own lives. What he would love to do is really be able to change what is your God-given end or your God-given destiny or your God-given outcome. And we have to decide who we are going to cooperate with. Are we going to cooperate with the one? Notice the text doesn't say anything about your God-given destiny. This is how Satan twists God's word. Who sows the good seed or are we going to cooperate with the one who brings the tears in our life? Not tears, although sometimes that's what is involved. There's lots of people who could tell you why sow wine. But one thing I do know is that the last thing Jesus said before he said, it is finished, or the last thing that he tasted was sow wine. And the truth of it is sometimes people here have been confronted even in recent times with an end of something, with perhaps the finish of something, and it's been a little like sour wine. It certainly left a sour taste in your mouth, but don't ever get looking at your life just from the perspective of what's happening now and see the end where you see the end because we don't determine the end. He determines the end. We can decide by our attitude that we're going to give up the end and allow the the one who would love to usurp the outcomes or the purpose of God in our life would love to steal it from you and rob it from you. This is a narcissistic lit- litany of nonsense that we're hearing at this point. But let's not allow the finish of something to be an ending. I was in Dubai at the airport transferring to Uganda, and there was a huge long escalator walking path, walking sidewalk, you know what they are. But right in front of us was a woman who hadn't ever seen one of those before. And uh, she got to the end with dozens and dozens of people behind her. And uh, when she got to the end of this moving pathway, you could actually see her beginning to panic. And she got to the end, took one tiny step off the end and stopped. And you know, literally, it was chaos because everyone else couldn't stop. They were on a walking pathway. And so they were trying to walk backwards. It was chaos. You had to see it. You couldn't believe that someone would get just to the end and just take one tiny step off and stop. 
No one else had anywhere to go. And yet, I think sometimes we can get so overruled in our minds by what may be right now. Looks like the finish of your dreams or the end of an era. And we stop there. You're not supposed to stop there because maybe it's over, but you're not finished. God has your hand and your life in His hand. And if we would just learn to trust Him at that time, obviously we don't see everything that's right in front of us, but every day has a transition to the next day, the new day. It's called night. And sometimes we are in that moment like night and we can't see what's right in front of us, but it's just critical that at that moment we can believe there is an eternal God who sees things greater than we see things and that we believe Him and that we don't stop there. Many people's life stops where it's never was supposed to stop. And if we would just trust God and take a hold of Him and believe His Word and commit to the future and accept that God is going to be true to His Word, then you can be the storyteller of great miracles. See, I have now been pastoring this church for 26 yeah, see, you can be the story of storyteller of great miracles of your life, the one where that has the big God destiny thing going on, not the story of the miracles of Jesus' life. Narcissus, making yourself the center of the biblical text, because you got to love yourself. You're the most important person ever, right? Way more important than Jesus, who's really, you know, just your life coach, your co-pilot. You know, the guy giving you the tips on how to make your life successful. Six years, but I've been in ministry overall for more like 35 years and have had enough experience in my own life and to witness in other people's lives to be able to tell you how many times I have seen what looked like a tragic end in people's lives become a tremendous testimony to the grace of an almighty God because they didn't stop. They didn't stop. So, believe for the best for the future. Yeah, yeah. Just believe for the best for the future. That's what the gospel is all about. You show God how much faith and positive thinking you have by believing the best for your future. Believe for the best. Here, listen to some verses. Write that down. Believe for the best about the future. It says, hold the beginning of your confidence until the end. We can start out confident. Huh? You know, so often we can start with confidence, but life itself can attack and hit that confidence. And the Bible says, hold what was the beginning of confidence until the end. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Yeah, and in Hebrews 11, it's all about the great things that the saints have done by faith. 
including being eaten and torn apart by wild beasts. They did that by faith, too. Yeah, read the tail end of Hebrews 11. That's why we've got to believe for the best for the future. That's why we need to look at what is before us. <laughs> so often we don't know. David says, Psalm 39, he says, let me know. He's talking to the Lord. Lord, make me to know my end. We don't know. He said, and what is the measure of my days that I might know how frail I am? He says, help me to know. In Psalm 90 verse 12, he says, teach us, O Lord. The word rather says, teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Notice he's ripping all these verses out of context, fortune cookie style. Mm -hmm. He talks about wanting to know his end, recognizing the frailty. He just wanted to know how much time he had, he had left. And, and I, I think oftentimes we, we just don't know what's ahead of us. We, we can feel frail. We don't know what's out there. Faith's an adventure. I think sometimes if we could just see the first from the last, we would go, ah, this is okay. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Sometimes we just don't know. But if we did know, if we did understand the greatness of God, the faithfulness, of an almighty God. Yeah, and uh, that cross would be the supreme example of it. Don't you think you might want to really unpack what happened there? We need to always believe for a better day. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, that's part one here. We're going to do part two in just a second. So, yeah, the gospel is all about believing for a better day. Mm -hmm. yeah, this isn't the gospel. This is a different gospel. This is a false gospel. And it's not based upon a sound reading and exegesis of any passage whatsoever. This is just all just a good motivational pep talk from a a guy with snappy clothes and an Australian accent out there in Sydney who has a megachurch. But he's not preaching God's word. He's not preaching the gospel. He's twisting God's word, completely mangling it, and in basically smuggling in a false gospel, distracting you and pointing away from the biblical message, from the biblical gospel, and our real hope and our real salvation. Very dangerous indeed. We continue. i, I got lots of things I have to do and lots of responsibilities, and I don't think I'm the type of person who tries to hold on to things, so... I prayed about it a lot, but earlier this year, I let go of being the, the president, the overseer of what is our denomination, our movement, Australian Christian churches. And it, I didn't think that would be all that big a deal at all. And we got to the actual conference and it was great. And one of my best friends became the next president. I was excited for him. And it got to the actual night. And, you know, I literally almost sensed everybody's attention on that night and in that conference go like this. And I went to bed that night feeling flat. And I'm thinking, why am I feeling flat? This is what I wanted. It's kind of like, what's ahead? And I woke up in the morning and I pulled out the piece of paper where 
I just began to write some of the things that were in my spirit for the future. I just started to get it in my spirit. And you know, with it. Just started to write the things that were in my spirit for the future. Uh huh. And where does the Bible say to do this? In a very short period of time, I just started to get this faith for the best for my future into my heart from that day to this. Really, not a single regret. I believe that we should believe for a better day. I believe you ought to talk to your future. Psalm 23, verse 6, you know, it's surely goodness and mercy shall... Yeah, Psalm 23, verse 6 doesn't say anything about talking to your future. I don't know what I would say to my future. Hi, uh, I'm not there yet. You know, it seems like I'm always chasing you. Could you slow down a little bit, you know? You always seem to be just right outside of my grasp, you know, but then, then you know, never mind. Don't follow me all the days of my life. Talk to your future. Psalm 45, the psalmist there says, my heart overflows with a good theme. It says, I write my composition to the king. I love the psalm. It says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Yeah. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And sometimes I think it's not as though God doesn't know for the first from the last, the beginning from the end, and isn't working to His eternal purpose. But we need to make sure that we allow our tongue to be the pen of a ready writer. Because sometimes what we are writing over our own lives with our own confession is not helping us to stay on course. With That's the word faith heresy. You speak your future into existence, the power of your words, which is a magical worldview, not a biblical worldview. And that's not what that text says. The process of seeing the will of God established in our lives. Amen. Believe for a better future. Talk to a better future. And then just commit to your future. By commit to it, I don't mean just hanker after what has been left behind. Just go after it. Looking forward is the very best way to live our lives. That's why the world is full of hopelessness. Loves to just take hope away from people. When I say loves, I don't think people necessarily just love to take hope. It's just that many people don't have any hope themselves. And if they don't have any hope themselves, when they hear hope, well, then they often say, you're just giving people false hope because they have no hope in God. They have no hope in Him who knows the beginning from the end. Many times you start to pray for somebody who's sick and believe for them. And the spirit that will come from people is you're giving people false hope. But if you just have this belief that God is in charge of my life and you commit to the future and you just trust Him. Many times it's the fact that we can't let go of the past that actually inhibits what's ahead for you. So my future is inhibited if I can't let go of the past. Okay, yeah, um, maybe, sure, whatever. But uh, you got any biblical passages that bear this out clearly? This isn't a biblical teaching, and it has absolutely nothing to do with John 19. So let's decide. We're going to commit to all that's ahead of us. 
Now, one of the saddest things that people do is end something that isn't over yet. That's why you've got to guard your heart. You know, sometimes we can let offences get into us. We can let just distracted thinking to get into us. We can get... Yeah, you know, that stinking thinking, you know, it can totally short-circuit your future, especially if you start speaking negative words over your life. Wow, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. This is Stuart Smalley stuff. Spirit of the world inside of us and not guard our heart. If you're not looking after your heart, you're not looking after your future. And if you're not looking after your future, oftentimes... Yeah, if you're not looking after your heart, you're not looking after your future. What does that sentence even mean? Diagram it for me. You can allow tears to, uh, you know, basically get in our thinking, which means we're cooperating with the enemy whose goal is the end of the age or bring that right down to a practical level whose goal is to sabotage the end when it comes to the will and the purposes of God in your life. No, the goal of the enemy is to send you to hell, to destroy you, to kill, steal, and destroy, and ultimately send you to hell. Not to, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see Satan going, oh no, there's a bunch of Christians out there who are, who are experiencing God's grand vision for their life. Ah! Let's just be people who, we just got this determination. And I'm going to hold on to whatever we lost. Looking back is such a dangerous way to live. I can start reminiscing on a building right next door to here. It was too small. Oftentimes the sound bounced around something crazy. There's far too many people. Many times people would literally line up around the buildings. In all of that, so easy to start going back. And uh, human nature's terrible at that. And the older we get, the worse we get at it. I just don't want to live my life that way. I want to wake up when I'm 97 years of age, just believing for a better future. I'm mean and angry and unhappy about the way. Yeah, when you're 97 years of age, expecting and waiting and hoping for a better future. Yeah, if I hit 97, I'm going to be hoping for a better future, all, all right. <laughs> One that includes dying and being raised again. Oh, man. These young people are messing up all the good work we did. I want to wake up with a spirit of somehow, you know, even though maybe I'm on the last breath, but somehow what's inside of me is full of dream and full of vision and full of days. I just want to live committed to the future. Yeah. Full of dream, full of vision. I want to be committed to the future. And not a single verse talks about this. This is a false doctrine. This is Bible twisting, narcissistic eisegesis, and a false gospel to boot. Yeah, I'm sorry. Brian Houston is not an orthodox or sound biblical teacher. He's a wolf. And anybody who partners with him in ministry probably is a wolf as well. Yeah. Committed to the future. <laughs> I don't think you'll ever hear us get up here and say, look, we just run out of vision. <laughs> we just don't know what to tell you anymore. It's... Yeah, I mean, yeah, the no biblical teacher would ever run out of, quote, vision 
because we have the Bible. I don't know what you're talking about. Times are tough, recessions hit. I don't think you'll ever hear that. More than that, I don't think you'd ever want to hear that. But in our own lives, let's live with this commitment to the future. And to do that, you have to guard your heart. You have to make sure that you don't allow yourself to get into a situation where you live in a way where you bring to an end something that's over. And on the other hand, let things get into our heart, which would cause us to start something which only has one inevitable end. And that's pain or hurt. Or to ignore the fact that everything in fact has an end and live without that sense of urgency that understands the frailty of our days. I believe if you commit to the future, you gotta commit to stay fresh. Listen to this. It's the wisdom of Solomon, but he says, if the ax is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength. But wisdom brings success. You think about that. If the ax is dull, you've got to swing it harder and harder and push more and more and strive more. And, yeah, got to swing that ax so hard. You're going to wear yourself out because the ax is dull. And if we commit to the future, got to look after the inner man. Not allow the axe to be dull. Man, if the axe is dull when it comes to our relationship with God, or if perhaps we don't have the confidence that we began with. You know, we're sort of trying to hold on till the end, but we're not doing so with the confidence. We just had our confidence knocked once too much. The axe is dull. We can come into church and we're faithful people. We love God and you know, we're tithing and we're putting God, but the axe is dull. And yeah, we're faithful people. We're tithing. We're good people. We're obedient, but our axe is dull. We, we just need some wisdom. Hmm. Our problem is we're all sinners and we need a Savior, the one who bled and died for us on the cross. Notice, mention the cross, but no repentance, no forgiveness of sins, no penal substitution, no God propitiating, no Christ propitiating the wrath of God, none of that. I mean, he was just setting a good example for us of what it is like to be determined in the face of an ending, to face and have good thoughts for the future. Pretty much what it boils down to. And if you live like that, you're not really living with a commitment to your future. It comes out of determining that you're going to allow your spirit to be renewed, your soul to be restored, your body to be well. You're just committed to keeping the axe sharp. Because then a whole lot less effort goes a long way further in life. I know whenever my spirit's got dull and my soul has been jaded, I start striving harder and pushing more and working harder to try to do it in my own strength and never accomplishes the purpose of God. Out of a commitment to a future, the very best thing that I can do sometimes is look after my own spirit. 
look after my own soul. I, I don't know what any of this means. I mean, we we started freewheeling off-roading a long time ago. I this stopped being a biblical sermon. Well, like at the beginning. Oh, make sure that I'm looking after me because when the axe is sharp, <laughs> you just seem to, with a whole lot less effort, see the blessing of God working in your lives. So is the axe dull? Have maybe you got a little jaded? Has your confidence taken a hit? Have you found that maybe you're just in this state of flux and one part of your life's come to an end and you really don't know what the next season is? Let's just have a commitment to the future. And that's where yeah, yeah. Let's just be committed to the future. Yeah, yeah. So is your confidence taking a hit? Yeah, that's what Jesus died on the cross for, to help those whose confidences have taken a hit. They just need to have faith in the future. And I'll finish with this. Sometimes just determine to watch people. Watch the people who, what they believe when it comes to the Word of God. What they believe they're living and it's actually working in their lives. There's various words in the scripture that are translated end, but they pretty well are talking about outcomes. The way it works out, where it ends. Yeah, you know, you know, how do things work out for you? You know, that's what end is talking about. You know, like I'm talking about the eschaton. How do things work out for you? What are the outcomes? Hebrews 13, 7, listen to it again. It says, imitate those who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Do you hear that? Con- the salvation of their souls. Considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, watching the way they live, affecting the outcomes in their life. You start watching the wrong people. It's not going to help you to commit to the future. Start listening to the wrong voices. It's not going to help you to commit to the future. Yeah, you know, may I recommend committing to your eternal future by getting rid of this false doctrine. Yeah, have the eternal end in mind here because false doctrine sends you to hell. Something just to consider. Start entertaining wrong thinking. And it's not going to help you to commit to the future. I agree. False doctrine is not helping you commit to an eternal future with God. It's leading you to hell, an eternal future in hell, in, in the fiery furnace. So you, do, you don't want to listen to the wrong voices like Brian Houston. There's a better day ahead. Praise God. He's the beginning and the end. And the beginning. Maybe an era has ended, but if a destiny is not completed, then never ever confuse the end of an era in your life for the completion of a destiny. Yeah, whatever. This is just gobbledygook. If your destiny is not complete, then you should never be ruled by the end of any season. Yeah, you're just spinning out your own absurd statements now. Or any era. 
because as long as God is God and he is eternal and the Lord is Lord and you've got breath, God can fulfill his promise in your children, in your finances, in your well-being, in your life. Yeah, what about your eternal soul? Everything you're talking about is really temporal there, don't you think? If you believe it, say amen. amen. Yeah, I didn't say amen. I don't believe any of that. Amen, amen, amen. Yeah, none of that was based on sound biblical hermeneutics. It was a twisting of God's word and a wrestling of a passage about the sufferings of Christ on the cross for our sins, wrestling that away from Christ and making about, well, you. Narcissistic eisegesis. It is a damnable sin. It is the worst poison in all of the poisons of the false teachers. This is the thing that will keep you in a drunken stupor as you sit there and you imbibe and get intoxicated on this grand vision and dream that God supposedly has for you. But believe me when I tell you, when you sober up, um, if you don't sober up before you die, you'll sober up in hell. This is a false gospel based on Bible twisting and narcissism. This is not how a Christian pastor should handle any text. In fact, going back to what I said, based on what we heard in this sermon, I'm sorry, Brian Houston needs to hand in his preaching license. He should never be allowed to teach the Bible ever again. That's how extremely horrible and sinful what he just did is. And I won't back down from it. <clears throat> All right. We are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, it's a listener-supported radio. Visit our website and click on one of the friendly yellow buttons to support us, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>